Uh, welcome everybody to Learn With All. Today we're joined with Nick Goldner. He is a three, a now three-time guest of the show. Nick has grown a lot in the last five years since the first time he was on. And him and his company, Resistance Bio, is going to be the focus of today's episode. Their mission, just as a quick brief for people who do not know, is to fight treatment-resistant cancers and find and develop therapies that can potentially save about 600 patients' lives, uh, affect the lives of 600 patients in the U.S. who are running out of treatment options. Nick, welcome back. Thanks, Lowell. I'm really excited to be on. Uh, looking forward to it. Yes. Now, 600,000, I rounded up. It's like you have like a very like science, like 592 or something like that. What What is the effect of that? Like, is it 600,000 people that are now uh, essentially terminal and they have like X mon- number of years left? Or what is, what's the practicality of like 600,000? Yeah. So <clears throat> when we think about cancer death, um, you know, there's about 610, uh, maybe a little bit more, 1,000 patients who die of cancer every single year. Um, and about 90% of these patients, so close to like 547,000 of them, um, are, are dying because of treatment-resistant cancer. And so the drugs that they have uh, available to them, the options that are you know, uh, available to them just no longer work. And so the only option to them is to pass away. So then it's been three years since last we spoke. You have a bunch of new programs, uh, well, seemingly new from, from my standpoint. Um, what is the significance of NCARE, or how do you say it, uh, NCARE or whatever? Uh, actually, how do you say it? And then what's the significance in affecting the 600,000? Yeah, so uh, what we do is we really focus on helping pharmaceutical companies understand their therapeutic pipeline. So uh, how it typically works is you have a drug company, they've got tons of drugs, and what they're trying to figure out is which therapies are going to work the best, the longest, in the right patient population. And so when we look at the failure rate in clinical trials, so once you get a drug from, you know, uh, the, the, the lab and you're like, okay, um, I've got enough confidence. It works in, you know, cells, it works in organoids, uh, it works in mice, rats, dogs, etc. At any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe. It is hugely beneficial and it tells Google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching. Thank you for everyone thus far who has commented, liked, subscribed, and told their friends. Um, now I want to move into the clinic. And so that translation rate, basically, um, from going to discovery and in the lab to the clinic, only about 3% of all drugs that make it to clinical trials will ultimately get uh, approved in the cancer space. And so that's a huge, huge failure rate, right? Um, and so what we do is we help uh, these pharma companies identify which drugs are going to have the highest likelihood of approval uh, so that they can prioritize compounds that are going to save patients rather than prioritize compounds um, that may or may not, um, you know, work. And so um, ENSER uh, stands for Environmental Cellular Reprogramming. Um, and it's a way for us to essentially take treatment-naive cancer cells or, or, or cancer cells that have been immortalized, um, you know, by NSBI, other labs, and what we do is we change the environment that these cells are in over a long period of time. Um, and this environmental change is kind of confined to a couple of things. You know, the first thing is the uh, um, environmental signals that are actually being, um, you know, sent to these cells to grow. Uh, the second thing is the dose response. So how the drug is actually seeing the particular uh, therapy, the particular cancer type. And then the last thing is, um, you know, what is the environment itself, you know, that allows these cancers to uh, um, to, to, to be resistant. So there's a lot of three-dimensionality that, that you see. So in a patient, you have a big tumor. You want to repeat that big tumor. You want to make sure that there's a gradient of drug that actually gets in. 
you want to be able to make sure that these cancer cells are seeing human, you know, growth factors rather than what they typically see in the lab, which is cow growth factors, you know, cow serum uh, and mm -hmm. plastic, you know, two things that don't really exist in patients. And so we try to address for these uh, systemic errors in preclinical discovery that prevent us from increasing that approval rate from 3% to something closer to what we see in anti-infectives, which is almost 20 to 25%. Uh, is it something that would be put us on the path to having more cures for cancers? It seems like we'd have a much more fundamental understanding of like how cancers change, why they're coming back, and all these other things with it. Yeah. So, you know, we, we think of cancer as a fairly mature industry just because of how many drugs we have that are out there that can actually treat cancer to some degree. Um, but what I've learned over the course of my time, it's that very much like, uh, you know, intro to chemistry when we were trying to figure out what does an atom look like? You know, we had all these different fundamental models of what atoms look like. And yet um, it wasn't until we came apart, uh, came upon the, uh, um, the real model of what an atom looks like, you know, the nucleus with the electrons and the different layers of electrons that we were able to create chemistry um, that enabled all the technology that we're working with today. And so that's the same thing that we're in with, uh, with cancer. You know, people have an evolving understanding of what the cancer model actually looks like, what cell types are important, what factors are important in terms of how the cancers evolve and adapt and change, and how they grow in different environments within the body. Yeah. Uh, uh, do we know why cancers come back? Like, why is it that, like, some cancers, like skin cancer, can be cured, but then, like, some other ones will just come back in, like, five to ten years? Yeah. <clears throat> so those are the resistance mechanisms. That's what we study. Um, mm -hmm. so we, we think of cancer as a kind of static disease. It doesn't really change very much, but what we've learned over time, um, and what has become very apparent in the academic community and the, um, you know, uh, academic medicine community is that the cancer drugs that we use directly affect how these cancers evolve and adapt. They can change their DNA. They can change their metabolism. They can, they can go dormant. Uh, for instance, and become stem-like in that sense. And so they're very resistant to different therapeutic modalities trying to, to, to kill them. And so when we think about recurrence or relapse, um, it's because we haven't killed, you know, 100% of the cancer. You know, whenever you look at that bottle of uh, hand sanitizer, it's like 99.999% mm -hmm. effective. It's that 0.001% that uh, isn't being killed by the immune system, that isn't being killed by the drug. And when the right environmental factors are present, you know, maybe you're sick, maybe you have surgery, maybe it's just been long enough that these uh, cells then start to grow again. And so that's really why recurrence occurs is that you haven't killed off the entirety of the tumor um, or those mutations become present in a different tissue and in a different uh, you know, origin site that ultimately results in cancer. Do you think for, for you personally, would you rather um, focus on getting to that 100% or is it better to focus on targeting and treating uh, and just accept the fact that like if we, if we live longer, we're most likely, I think I was uh, reading this recently that as men, if we live long enough, we will, we will either die with uh, prostate cancer or we'll die uh, from prostate cancer. Like, well, <laughs> so, uh, so it's just like, yeah, of those two uh, bifurcations, which, which uh, path do you think would be, make more sense? So, I mean, like the, the goal should always be curative outcomes, right? Where we kill a hundred percent of the cancer. Um, I think what's difficult is, is that, um, uh, 
you know, evolution and adaptation are core features of who we are as human beings and who we are as, you know, biological organisms. And uh, cancer is really just the result of evolution kind of gone awry. Um, and so, you know, my hope is that we'll be able to cure cancer, but I think a step towards curing it is turning it from a from an acute disease, which will kill you in a few years to a few months, uh, to turning it to a chronic disease where you pass away from something else like, you know, a heart attack or you're just old. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, ultimately the goal is always to cure. Um, and, uh, anything that you can do in the interim to turn it into something chronic is, is always a win. Are you familiar with Michael Levin's work? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I asked him, why is it that cancer, why is it that cancers are immortal when they come from mortal cells? And he was like, I think you're asking the question wrong. Why is it that more, why are cells mortal? And, uh, like something that he suggests is that the organism, even, even from like all the way down to the cells and even, even lower inside the cell. They all are influencing how they work together. And so um, sometimes I wonder, is it the uh, cancer running awry or is it just going back to the way it, way it was like back when like cells were grabbing mitochondria and other things around them? Like what if it's just like a natural phenomenon versus like an unnatural phenomenon in our body and biology is like imposing order and that's just like a chaos naturally happening? Um, I mean, from my perspective, I think that ultimately uh cancer is a is a natural biological process right like it's it's going to happen it happens in a lot of different ways um and the breakdown uh that occurs that allows cancer to happen um is very much environmentally influenced and so you know um the, the running joke is that in california everything causes cancer um but i think what we're really trying to what we're really seeing is is that cancer is just um another natural process that occurs right uh, as mm -hmm. a part of evolution as a part of adaptation um things change uh, and sometimes they change in a way that is not beneficial to the whole organism but is beneficial to the individual cell uh, and you know that's why from from my perspective when i think of cancer i think of it as a very complicated infection right uh, as soon as the cancer uh, basically changes its genome enough um, it's no longer you know nick's cancer it's you know, the cancer is cancer. It's its own thing. Yeah. It's evil that way and how it kind of, like, it, it hides by pretending to be Nick for a while or, or Lowell. And then as soon as it's big enough to club us over the back of the head, then it's like, no, I'm not I'm not a part of you anymore. I'm going my own way. Uh, which Good. is pretty shitty. Very smart, though, right? Um, from the organism standpoint. The, so with INS here, um, I think there's, like, three parts to it when I was looking at your website. Um, but one of them was the reprogramming cancer, um, mm -hmm. I believe. So it, in answer. layman terms, yeah, yeah, that's the er and answer. No, no. So, so, so the the platform is threefold. So it's answer mm -hmm. as a as a as a uh, protocol. So answer basically wow. is all the different components that are important for um, uh, creating a physiologically relevant environment. You know what what is the cancer type? What are the drugs that are being used? Um, what are the environmental factors that are affecting the cancer's, you know, growth rate? Is it, you know, close to the kidney or is it close to the brain uh, or close to the heart? Um, you know, what is the degradation of the drug? What's the tumor microenvironment in terms of like the, uh, the, the extracellular matrix, like the proteins that are actually keeping these cells together? Um, that's what ENSER is. It's, it's trying to understand and parameterize all the different things that change over time uh, within a particular tumor um that protocol is then run 
on uh, cell lines and or tumor samples from patients so that we can get a readout of what resistance looks like. And so the second component of that system is called the rescue cartridge. Now the rescue cartridge is the physical device, kind of like a terrarium, um, but we can change the inputs and outputs of that particular system. So we can change the flow, we can change the amount of drug, we can change the, the cell lines that are in there, the cell types that are in there. Um, and so that's the physical vessel that contains, you know, all of the uh, the cancer. And ENSER is like the program that we run in the rescue mm -hmm. cartridge uh, to create a resistance model. Now, what's been really kind of interesting is when I started my PhD program, single cell sequencing was just coming out as a thing. Like they were still trying to figure out how do we do long read sequencing of, you know, base pairs longer than 200 base pairs because Illumina had, you know, certain limitations with its imaging technology. And so I, I kind of grew up scientifically in this kind of golden age of uh, analysis technology of living biology. And so what we've been able to do is, you know, apply this kind of Moore's law, so to speak, of uh, ever advancing technology to understand biology. Um, to these cancer cells. So before we were looking at bulk sequencing, we would take, you know, hundreds or millions of cells, and then we would chop up their DNA and say, what's the average uh, of the cancer's, you know, genetic makeup? But now what we're able to do is actually, you know, get down to the single cell level, look at individual cells, and even individual chromosomes in some cases when it comes to, um, you know, uh, um, image analysis, where we can actually stain for particular mutations and see if there's co-locations um, of these mutations within the same cell. And so as we get more data and as the data becomes more rich, we're actually able to analyze and understand these resistance mechanisms to a higher degree. But that also increases the complexity of the data that we have to analyze. And um, that's where the bioinformatics and resistance rank really comes in. And so you can think of resistance rank very much like uh, page rank for Google's ad searches, right? You, you type in Facebook and you get a social media site. You know, before you'd type in Facebook and maybe you'd get a list of a whole bunch of authors and their faces next to it, right? Um, and so for us, it's about how do we measure the weight of the changes that occur between these different cells and between the different mutations and between the different uh, um, you know, biological processes so we can understand the core pinnings, uh, underpinnings of what resistance is and how to control it or prevent it from occurring um, so that you can develop curative cancer therapies or at the very least cancer therapies that result in chronic you know, uh, response so that the patient dies of something else besides the cancer. Yeah, it's interesting to have you on multiple times and hear some of these ideas as they as they coalesce. Like three years ago, we talked about the rescue thing, the rescue component of this, and the other two uh, that we just mentioned, bioinformatics mm -hmm. and NCR, were where they were there, but they were like still. I don't think they had like cool names, for instance. So I'm, I'm curious. Uh, just in the last three years, uh, what does that development look like in house for you? Yeah. Um, so we study evolution and resistance um mm -hmm. as a as a company um and it's also something that's really important in our understanding of technology and our understanding of the problem and so as we understood cancer you know better as our thinking evolved um, we had to develop technologies that address these core questions that um, weren't available from off the shelf um you know off the shelf uh, uh you know vendors like we couldn't go up and <laughs> buy a kit that basically evolved cancer cells. Um, you know, we couldn't just look at what was done in the past because, 
you know, when we look at what was done in the past, it's resulted in a 3% success rate for cancer drugs in the clinic. And so we had to go back and ask ourselves, what are the fundamental assumptions um, that we as a cancer community and as an evolution community have applied to cancer that are wrong? You know, what first principles did we get, um, did, did we not understand fully? And how do we evolve our thinking and get around the resistance to change in the academic and in the scientific community so that we can start to implement technologies that fundamentally answer the second question, which is so important to, to patient survival? A lot of companies and a lot of researchers are trying to answer the first question, which is, how does cancer exist? You know, what was the thing that caused cancer to be cancer? But what we're worried about, you know, what's going to end up changing patients' lives is, how does cancer evade our best attempts at trying to kill it? And if you can answer that question, you're starting to develop therapeutics then that are actually going to treat the underlying cause of patient death you know, from cancer rather than mm -hmm. you know, what caused the cancer, because it's already there. You know, the problem has occurred. Now you got to prevent it from getting worse. Yeah, it makes sense. It feels like it's completing the 360. If you don't know why it's going wrong, you're not really understanding the system because you're only seeing the success rates, which is like a, there's like that uh, math. I think this is a math class where I heard this, where there's a bunch of planes coming back from, from uh, World War II, uh, the ones that were surviving, they're trying to figure out where to put armor on the plane. And they had all the bullet holes, you know, like, you know, shown out. And so they asked, you know, where do we put the armor? And people, some people said, oh, put the armor over where the bullet holes are. It's like, no, put the armor where the bullet holes aren't. Because those clearly are the spots that if you shoot them, they go down. You know, it's kind of like you only have the survivorship bias of it. What Over the last couple of years, and if, if, th if three years is like, it's, it is a very long time. Like, how do you think of a day versus a year or a month? Like, this is a time scale. But I, I'm curious, like, what over since last we spoke, has let you know that you were on the right path? Like, the, like are, have there have been specific <laughs> mile markers of success rates or anything that's been really um, letting you know, like, this is the, the route to, to doggedly stay on versus nuancing it in a different direction? Yeah. So there were two things that let me know that I was on the right track. Um, the first thing was when we predicted accurately our first clinical trial before the data came out. So we were um, testing drugs that we wanted to see if they were effective. Um, and we were basically looking at, uh, um, you know, these seminal papers where they were like, this drug is amazing for these reasons. And look at all the data that shows that it kills cancer. And so we just wanted to see if we could recreate that result. Because at the time, you know, we were still very much, you know, evolutionary biologists trying to find a system to, to study. You know, we had looked at, you know, bacteria, etc. Um, and so when we were focusing on cancer, it was really important for us to get a baseline and to get a... Uh, um, you know, a sense of reality based on what other people had seen. You know, we wanted to make sure that we were, we weren't, you know, creating new problems, but that we were, you know, learning uh, from those that came before it. And what ended up happening was, um, I, I had this conversation with one of our scientists, and they uh, um, they came in and they're like, "Hey, we need to change the system. Um, the the cells didn't die." And I was like, "Okay, well." Did you give the right amount of drug? You know, I was just kind of asking him, you know, the, the basic questions around the experimental design. And he's like, yeah, I mean, I, I put in the right amount of cells, put in the right amount of drug. It wasn't degraded. It was, you know, stored properly. Um, the cells were, you know, kept intact. And I'm like, well, what if we just assumed that this data was correct, right? Rather than assuming that, you know, uh, these other papers or these other, you know, publications are right. What if we believed in the data that we had? 
And so what we did was we ended up doing all that kind of data analysis, the sequencing that we were looking at to see what changes occurred. And as it happened, um, when we got the sequence data back, we found all of these changes that were very specific to the target of the drug and to cancer, uh, um, into cancer uh, uh, um, pathways. So things that have been previously associated with resistance to other drugs and other indications were starting to pop up in this cancer with this particular drug and in our system. And uh, what was really exciting was then the clinical trial data came out from this particular, uh, you know, clinical group uh, from this pharma company. Hmm. And it turns out across this like 250 patient uh, clinical trial, we were actually pulling out about, you know, 80 to 90, 92% uh, of all of the resistance mechanisms that were found in these patients. And so when we looked at the resistance mechanisms that were known prior to our system, you know, they may have found three or four, um, but we were finding, you know, tens to hundreds of them. Uh, and so what we realized was is that the starting population and the environment that these cells were in really mattered to us being able to understand uh, cancer resistance. And so that was kind of the first proof point. We predicted a clinical trial's outcome prior to the clinical trial being finished, right? That's huge. That's like a, <laughs> that's, that's the, uh, the golden goose, so to speak. Like that's the, the holy grail of what, you know, people want to be able to do is uh, prioritize drugs that they know are going to work. And we were able to predict how it, uh, how, how these, uh, you know, cancer cells changed. Um, like any good magic trick, though, um, you know, being able to make a rabbit disappear is only so interesting. Uh, you have to be able to bring the rabbit back. And so for us, what we wanted to do is see if we could solve the cancer resistance problem. Is there a way for us to address, you know, resistance as it occurs? And so um, in a different cancer type uh, we were looking at, um, this was a, you know, RAS mutant uh, cancer. So they had a mutation in the RAS pathway, but um, when you tried to treat it with these targeted therapies that went after the RAS pathway, um, they weren't they weren't effective. And so there was something else kind of going on in these cancers that enabled them to change. So typically what we found is that in the uh, cancer space and in, in biology in general, we're trying to, uh, you know, get this uh, gradient of signal to noise. There's all this noise that occurs when we're measuring things and we're looking for that specific signal that, you know, vastly increased peak. But a lot of the biology that's important to, to cancer's evolution and to their ability to survive <clears throat> actually comes from very small changes. But these small changes over the uh, um, over the course of the system um, uh, basically are amplified. And so what we're seeing in these amplified signals is actually uh, a consequence of a change, but not the driver itself. And so what we were able to do uh, was we were able to come up with a combination of drugs where the targets hadn't changed very much. There wasn't very much, there, there was little indication based on like current thinking of how we pick drugs and how we pick targets uh, to suggest that if we hit these, you know, targets uh, or proteins uh, with small molecules, that there would be little to no effect. And yet when we did uh, hit these particular targets, we found that we were really good at extending the life of these mice. And so we did this in a mouse experiment where we showed you know, if you give the standard of care, it takes very little time for the cancer to kind of 
take over. But if you went after these very specific targets within the uh, uh, within the cancer, not only could you um, you know treat the cancer, but you could dramatically extend the life of these mice. And that that was kind of the second point for us, which was we were able to make the rabbit disappear, find all the problems, and we were able to pull the rabbit back out of the hat and be able to actually solve the problem that we had tried to address. Yeah, hearing the first part, I was just thinking the like, wow, Nick's really bold. Like he's just going to assume the data's right. Like there's there's something in here where he corroborates the evidence <laughs> somewhere because you know it's just a bold, you know, to assume oh this is right, like everything else is wrong, you know. And he's like, oh, okay, so he used that to see where it's coming from and uh, trusted the gut that you guys did the right stuff versus waste time reproducing it. Imagine doing it like two, three more times, coming with the same result and wasting all that money. And then uh, versus, uh, I think it's kind of powerful that you trusted your team and the protocol and what you guys did. And then uh, and it's kind of funny that you just let the clinical trial prove you right, let them their money uh, prove you right, which kind of seems like a business opportunity. And that like, if you went to the boards of many companies and said, hey, you know, these these trials that you're spending X amount of money on, uh, I, I can I can tell you how it's going to come out like a like a magic trick. And so like they would have a fiduciary responsibility to 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 have you do that or else like, you know, tank their money, etc. shareholders. So I feel like you could instead of it sounds like a very um, a compelling route for monetization, where if you were to predict where things are going and, and come in and, and give people lay of the land before they do it so they can um know plan accordingly like that'd be you know i feel like they they would they would go with you if there was like someone being intransigent you know sometimes when you are doing bd and you're like working up the the you know, try to work to the right people and have those partnerships sometimes they're quite intransigent like they think like oh you don't have it etc but if you have like this type of data and you were to go to the people who can get sued if they don't listen to you it seems like a, a compelling uh, route to go down not that uh necessarily doing that right now but i would uh be curious to see how that would work if you were to try something like that so, I mean, uh, for, for us, we, we, um, we're more of the carrot rather than the stick kind of people. We want to really help uh, identify drugs in, in ways that will ensure that the company is going to be successful and that we want to we want to help them find patients where their drug is going to be yeah. really effective, right? Like, that's, that's what's important to us. And so we do work with pharma companies. You know, we do talk to scientists and clinicians and translational biologists, um, and we, we help them try to understand their compound in a way that makes them uh, better at making decisions about which drugs to advance, what clinical trials to design, um, and how that affects their market and how that affects their go-to-market strategy. Um, because you're right. I mean, ultimately, you know, a lot of, a lot of money and a lot of patients are being wasted on therapies that never, that never work. Um, and I think this is kind of the thing that people forget. You know, in a clinical trial, clinical trials are made up of hundreds of patients. Uh, and to a company, you know, each patient is a statistic. But to that patient, it's their entire life. It's their only life, you know, depending on how you think about the, you know, you know what your views on religion are. But the point is, is that that patient is trusting these companies to have done their work, right? And to really understand, you know, what are the potential outcomes? And we oftentimes look at these like kind of survivorship curves and it's very difficult to determine from, you know, patient to patient, you know, are they going to be the responder that is, you know, going to be cured by this therapy or are they going to be the patient that dies six weeks after they find out that they have cancer? And so for us, you know, it's really about how do we help these companies understand these individuals to a degree where they're picking patients that they know that they can help 
and that they're getting drugs approved in a way that, you know, it increases the number of therapies that are available rather than, you know, decreases it because they might not, you know, pick the right patient population or the wrong dose. And so we're really just trying to help them uh, understand their drug to the fullest potential so that they have a really good likelihood of approval and they have a really good likelihood that they're going to save patients in their clinical trials and when their drug is approved. Yeah, I think that's one of those situations where the carrot's so good, it's kind of like a stick. Like the carrot is the stick in the situation where it's like, if they don't use you, it feels like the, the carrot is so compelling in that increasing the odds of success that it's kind of like a stick of not using it. Um, like that's what I'm saying. Like it's just it sounds like the data would be so significant to these people that it'd be hard for them to thumb their nose at you. It's like the guy who um who uh figured out that if you wash your hands between uh uh deliveries with C sections that you know the rates of killing women went down. But instead of you know getting the data and proving it out, he just would yell at people like, No, you're killing the women and like the, the people didn't want to believe that they were doing something that would kill the women. And instead of like doing the data and uh he just kept yelling, so he, they kicked him out. But you have the data to back it up and so knowing like sometimes they're saying transidents would taking up new things and that's one of the problems with being a startup or a business like yourself who's uh in the early stages of things even though we're three plus years into it uh is that idea it's like why should i move why should i try this thing that is risky but if the carrot is so compelling it's kind of a stick and that like if you don't use it you're gonna waste money you're gonna waste lives and uh, at some point um i always feel it's compelling if, if like if if the fiduciary responsibility kicks in and then people are compelled to, to use your thing I, I, you know, I like that thing. I like the idea that, you know, uh, people are like, oh, no, you know, Nick's not doing something great, even though like all the data is there and then you can find a way to compel them to do the great, the right thing. Um, though I'm sure to your point, it's better if they just do the right thing in the first place. Well, I mean, I think this is, this is something that, you know, I, I when I was, when I was younger, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in an area that was, you know, fairly conservative and prone to different types of, you know, um, conspiracy theories and so there was this kind of feeling that these large pharma companies had uh, um, the cure to cancer but it was hidden away right and that there was a financial um you know opportunity to hide the cure for cancer and the reality is is that cancer you know trying to treat cancer is very difficult it's very complicated it's very hard um to to cure um, and it's also very, very poorly understood. I mean, like I said before, we're still at this model stage where we're trying to understand what cancer actually is and how it works. Um, and so <clears throat> what I've found is that with everyone that I've interacted with um, in the uh, oncology space, there's this deep sense of trying to do good, right? All of these people are working in cancer, not because they want to make money, but because they want to save lives. And I'm just trying to help them do it in a way that, you know, honors their time, you know, because like they, they also only have one life. They're trying to you know dedicate themselves to a drug that's going to work. Um, and it also helps them honor the patients that they're working with because, you know, they're identifying people who are going to benefit from the, from their hard work. And so for me, it's really about, um, you know, helping people who are helping people. Um, mm -hmm. Makes sense. The, um, it seems like if you understood the environmental variables and you had the platform that you developed, they'd also be able to reverse engineer markers for diagnostics. Like maybe that's a guess or a giant leap. Maybe it's an entirely different thing. But is there a potential for that, like parallelism of your technology and that use case as well? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, for us to understand how cancer is going to adapt and change. I think for right now, we're really just focused on therapeutics. Um, but, you know, whenever we develop a therapeutic, it's really important to be able to identify what biomarkers are going to be uh, relevant mm -hmm. um, to picking that patient population. And so we do work with companies to understand, you know, how to pick those patients. But we ourselves are not a diagnostic company and we don't want to be. Um, but we are more than happy to, you know, help provide data that's going to make it easier for doctors and for other companies to pick the right drug for the right patient. Yeah. Is that like a, a is that like a licensing of data? Like people, people would pay for it? Is it just part of the package of uh, partnership, I suppose? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's far away from, uh, what we're mm. thinking. I mean, there's a lot of ways to, to monetize that kind of data. Um, and it's definitely, you know, something that we might be thinking about in the future, but right now we're really trying to help, uh, pharma companies understand their therapeutics and, uh, help them, um, you know, pick the right patient populations. Um, I think the broader diagnostic play, well, really, really interesting. Um, there's still a lot of hurdles uh, that I think mm. other great companies are, are are working on to overcome. And, you know, I think as things change, you know, we'll be able to help there. But uh, right now we're focused on therapeutics. Yeah. Is there anything left that companies are looking for for you to demonstrate for them to really excitedly adopt what you've built? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, with, a, with anything, you know, there's, there's a, um, a degree of skepticism, right? Like, uh, the fact, the fact that we've been able to predict clinical trials, you know, um, yeah, with any scientist, they're like, you know, you, you did it a couple of times and so you made this line, but you know, how do you really, you know, generate robust, you know, proof that you can do this with this other cancer type or this other drug class or, or whatnot. And so for us, it's really just, you know, surviving long enough that we can get, get all these data points. Um, and eventually we might want to, you know, do a prospective clinical trial where we're, you know, actually looking at patients, trying to modify which uh, patients get which, you know, which drugs uh, based on our predictions. But until we have enough robust data, I think it's going to be a little far away. We have been able to, you know, do backdating or not, not backdating, um, retrospective analysis in some cases mm -hmm. where we have drugs that are already approved, you know, and we're able to show, okay, these resistance mechanisms are real. And this is when you saw it. This is when it changed. Um, but, um, you know, for us, especially with the therapeutics that we're trying to develop, uh, the proof will be in, you know, how these clinical trials shape up um, in these prospective studies. And so we're working with companies right now to uh, figure out uh, what those prospective studies look like so that they can get their drugs approved in the right patients. Is it possible for what you've built it seems like my guess would be that you'd be able to um, to somewhat speed things along and that if you understand the pathways, the resistance pathways, the dosage, all these different things, that it eliminates some gray areas of unknown that happens through the different clinical trials that necessarily have to be tested out as you're developing them. So it seems like they would, it would make it even not easier, but it would, be, it would simplify some of the things that are unknowns as people go through the clinical trials. Like they don't necessarily... They can, they can know to what threshold will resistance start happening, et cetera, that type of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, it allows you to have more confidence in the, the variables, that yeah. you, right? Like, so a lot of times, you know, you do, you do these dose ranging studies. You may not know how long your therapy lasts. Um, you may not know if you're able to treat certain areas of the body. And, and there's always going to be reasons why we have to do human clinical trials. Um, you know, I don't think our system necessarily uh, prevents them from doing those or, or, or supplants them. 
But what it does is it gives companies and scientists more confidence that when they choose a dose or when they choose a patient population, they're doing it with the most information that they possibly can have, um, given the state of the technology today, um, to really ensure that they're picking, you know, patients and drugs and doses that uh, that work for these patients and that work better. Yeah. Yeah. Is it possible to... Um... Like if you if there was clinical trials that that failed to then look at the clinical trials and understand why it failed. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we've already started looking at some drugs um, that that have had those failures, uh, and it's been pretty straightforward for us to understand why. Um, mm -hmm. Whether it's because of the intrinsic resistance that these cancer cells have, you know, like um, there's this thing called an IC90 and an IC50 curve, which stands for inhibition concentration 90, inhibition concentration 50. And so what that means is, is that at this particular concentration, 50% of the cancer cells growths are inhibited and 90% of the cancer cells growth is inhibited. The thing that, that we're finding often is that because of how toxic cancer, uh, anti-cancer therapies are, you're almost never giving a dose that is in that IC90 range. And so what that means is that there's always going to be drugs. Uh, there's always going to be cancer cells that have a little bit of resistance or can develop a little bit of resistance to that particular therapy. Um, and so, you know, we, we can help them understand uh, that relationship a lot better beforehand. Um, because it's really hard to translate what you see in a dish and what ends up being, you know, the dose that a patient receives. Um, and so, you know, that's something that we've been able to, you know, identify and help with so that, you know, if a drug is going to be really toxic or, you know, the amount of drug that you need in order for the drug to uh, be effective is just out of line with what you can give to a patient. It's a way for you to prioritize better drugs or prioritize changing the chemistry to make sure that the drug is more effective. Yeah, I kind of want to like take like a collections plate and like send you on a vacation or something because I think you're like too close to this. It sounds it, like to me, uh, it's, it's like, you know, when you're like sometimes when you hear someone talk about something they're like you know oh yeah I, I climbed a mountain yesterday and i fought a jaguar and i, I saved a kid's life and you're just like wow this person <laughs> you know, like it's like no sense of the cool stuff they're doing like the stuff that you're talking about like the difference between 50 and 90 and all like that's really significant what you're building from from my standpoint what i'm hearing it just feels really exciting what you've made and uh you know i don't know the the market i'm gonna ask you like you know is there you know, competitors and stuff like that but the going from some kid from the midwest to the point where you've built something that might save or affect 600,000 people's lives a year, which then compounds because how many kids are they going to have? How many kids are they going to have? Like that's a, like you might have like a Genghis Khan level effect on the human population. It's so huge. Yeah. Well, so, uh, I, my, my, my goal, um, is to add 10 billion years of human life in my mm -hmm. life. You know, um, by the time that we hit like, you know, 20 30 20 40 there's going to be 10 billion people out there already and so if i can help develop drugs that extend life by a year you know to all these people and all the people that they're affected by you know over the course of my lifetime you know i think that that would be um a life worth living hmm. yeah i agree and i think that uh i'm excited that i get to talk to you about it and um get people excited about it as well because that's one thing that i've been really enjoying about the the show is that 
um, people who write in, it's like from our generation on down, there's a sense of like, the world sucks. There's no opportunity. Climate change is happening. Cancer rates are increasing. Plastics in our heart. You know, it's and like, it's like crushing people's spirits. And so one thing I've liked is like a lot of people have been saying like, oh, I didn't know that this was happening. I didn't know that they, people were working on this type of stuff. Uh, and then they, you know, like they take on those jobs and, and whatnot. So uh, I like that. Like there is progress. There are people who are working on it. And there, there's like, there's a beautiful sun out there. There's beautiful trees and there's work like this that can be done where, I mean, I, I imagine like the team that you're working on is w- working with on this is pretty, pretty jazzed every day. Like there are days where it's like, can we get some coffee? You know, I'm like really stressed out or whatever. But um, when you can affect that level of, when you have that level of impact, you know, like, and you talk to your investors and you talk to like different people, like Grant, I'm sure like there's some overlap, right? Like they worked at previous companies that like were going to affect a lot of people and stuff. So maybe it's like less exciting, but I would, I would hope that there's just like a level of like kineticness when you talk about like a new discovery or a new outcome or a new thing that you're trying where like everyone's just a little, like I just imagine like a bunch of just like jazz nerds, <laughs> you know, like running around, <laughs> like building these things, or at least that's what I hope for. Um, you know, if, if you're in education, I assume that there, there's someone in that way. Um, uh, and if not, like, I don't know, I'll send you guys some coffee. But <laughs> no, I've, I've been up since like four this morning and I've had like my fourth espresso double shot with, you know, mm-hmm. uh, oat milk because um, apparently cows are bad. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, cows are I, delicious. No, I know. So, so I, the first time I ever uh, had oat milk, I was like, this is dumb. And now it's like the, my favorite thing in coffee. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Maybe I just mm-hmm. moved to California and got to granola for the. <laughs> For the yeah, you got to come back. You got to come back. The you know California has happy cows, but they won't really eat them. So, <laughs> but they're so happy because <laughs> they won't, they won't be eaten. Uh, but oh, it's weird uh, tip that I recently heard. Heard if you have a headache, if you take the headache medicine with caffeine, it like it juices it. That's oh yeah. I mean. That's what Excedrin. Okay, well, it's a scientist. Yeah, I don't know. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I get headaches a lot because of all the caffeine that I drink, and then you know I stop mm-hmm. drinking caffeine, and it's like you need more. Um, and so, like, I was looking at the bottle of Excedrin, and Excedrin's like um, a pain reliever plus caffeine, and it's like, gosh, they figured this out a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, but the, I don't want to get too distracted because I know you're excited to talk about more of what you're working on. The, um. I saw that you were looking for someone, and I even wrote it down because uh, one thing I always like to highlight is uh, when someone's looking to hire someone, um, you're looking for a 3D cell culture scientist. So if there's a person out there who may, we're going to talk about it, and if it's something that's exciting, uh, they can apply. But what what will this person do, and how will they fit into this big overarching vision that you have for what you're working on? Yeah, so uh, the rescue cartridge is really based on three dimensional cell cell culture, mm-hmm. right? You know, and so. We, we've made a couple of iterations to the platform and a couple of iterations to the system. And really the thing that we're, we're, we're bumping up against is scale. And so we're looking for somebody who can really like develop a smaller device that makes it cheaper for us to run these experiments with a higher degree of translatability. Um, and so, you know, our system works really great as is, um, but it takes a lot of time and it's very resource intense. You know, I, I, I liken it to, um, you know, the winemaking process you know the the there's a difference between you know uh, grapes that are grown on the side of a mountain and grapes that are grown in you know flat lands where you can just get a machine and kind of go through and pick all the grapes and then put them in a in a truck and and what we're what we're up against right now is that 
most of what we're doing is very labor intense. You know, the device itself works, but uh, we're trying to find a way to automate it and make it a little bit more efficient so that we can do more of the science and do more of the data analysis um, that, you know, running the system constantly uh, would allow us to do. And so it's uh, looking for somebody who can really help scale a system that uh, is already fairly robust. Have you, um, I know uh, for people listening, and I think I read a, a study where when someone looks at a job posting and they see all the things they're looking for, men will, if they have 50% of the qualifications will apply, women will do it if they have 80% of the qualifications if they apply. Are there, uh, so for people out there, just like homogenize it down, um, are there key experiences that you think would translate well uh, in particular? So if someone's like, oh, like I'm in cell ag and I've done this type of thing and I've not done cancer research, maybe I can translate that in. Because I think that uh, that study just seems really sad that like, that one's like being over, you know, uh, over like folks in a competency and stuff like that. So what are, what are some of like the, like the really key things that they would need to have like experience in? Yeah. Um, so 3D, uh, 3D cell culture uh, with mm -hmm. cancer. Um, so they need to have that cancer experience. Um, they need to have experience co-culturing cells. So having multiple different types of cells, uh, within the same, you know, system. So, uh, like fibroblasts, you know, um, cancer, immune component, the immune component is the really exciting one, uh, for us. Um, I think the other thing that's going to be important is I know that we're, we're switching from a, um, a larger system to a smaller system so that they have any uh, experience, you know, with microfluidic devices mm. and of combining that three-dimensional cell culture with the microfluidics, with the co-culture. That's really where, um, you know, we're going to have somebody that shines. Um, you know, cancer, again, it's very important <laughs> that they study cancer uh, because it's just such a, a unique thing. Um, and uh, cancer cell culture is just very... Um, it can be very finicky, especially when you're not using the traditional methods of growing cancer, um, because we're changing, you know, what, what the environment is, we're changing the, the media, um, all of that stuff affects how cancer is grown. So it's very important that they have that experience. Yeah. I would think that, um, like if, if it's such a deviation that, there's a lot of like uh, cell egg companies, for instance. I've been reading a lot about this. Ahmed Khan, check out his newsletter. But uh, <laughs> I've been reading a lot about this. And uh, so there's a lot of directors who have microfluidic uh, scaling of cell cultures. And yes, it's not cancer. But if it's totally new and they have a PhD, I feel like if they knew how to do the scalability thing, and then you already had a team of cancer uh, understanding folks uh, as the as the technical term, like maybe there's, there could be like a, a cross-pollination there. But also understand like, you're working cancer. And like you said, it's very complicated. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's definitely an opportunity for that person. Um, I think, you know, as the company grows, there's going to be more specialization, um, in, you know, the device versus the, uh, um, the media versus the, you know, three dimensionality versus the co-culture. Uh, I think for right now with this particular role, we're looking for somebody who can kind of do a lot of it without a mm. lot of, um, uh, you know, ramp up time in terms of their understanding. I mean, my, my, my personal experience, right? Like I, I'm, I'm not a trained cancer biologist. I mean, I studied first, um, I studied, uh, um, uh, IPSC differentiation. So stem cells, uh, and then I studied, you know, synthetic biology and then I studied, you know, bacterial engineering and, you know, 
uh, you know, the tumor, uh, the, not the tumor microbiome, the fecal microbiome and sequencing. Mm -hmm. So there's all of these experiences that I've had that have let me, you know, get to this point where I have a, a very broad understanding of, you know, biology. And it's allowed me to see very unique insights that somebody who's just been in one field might not have, right? I've been able to kind of coalesce a lot of information into, you know, a very specific way that's enabled us to have the advances that we've had. Um, and so, you know, if there's somebody who has, you know, kind of a similar experience to me and is really just eager to learn and eager to, to do anything that they can to experiment and try, I think that's somebody that uh, I'd love to meet, you know, yeah. uh, the doers is mm -hmm. just as important as, you know, the thinkers and oftentimes more so because, you know, the thinkers can think up a cool thing, but if they can't make it, it's not really useful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so someone wrote in and I'm sorry, I didn't write down your name, so, but uh, how does NCR models differ from CRISPR organoids? If you comment below, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll credit you, but how does NCR models differ from CRISPR organoids and animal models in terms of simulating resistance pathways? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. So, um, if we assume that Lowell, you like wine, um, and we assume that nobody would call grape juice and vodka wine, um, that's basically the big difference. So CRISPR is an amazing tool. I want to be really, really clear. CRISPR is great at engineering new biology. It's not very good at describing or understanding existing biology. It's like taking grape juice and vodka, putting it together and calling it wine. There's no nuance to it. So if you were to engineer out a particular gene or dump a whole bunch of, you know, mutations into a particular cancer, you know, cell subpopulation uh, with CRISPR by editing out these different changes, you're not creating the nuance that is required for patient biology because patients don't have, you know, CRISPR, you know, edits, you know, the edits that occur, the, the dysfunction that occurs in patients happens because of environmental changes. And so what ENSER does is it creates an environment for these cancers to create natural evolutionary pathways. So we're basically trying to recreate what happens in a patient. CRISPR is basically going in and saying, I got an idea and I'm going to make this particular change and I hope I see what happens, right? But it, it prevents us from understanding all the nuanced interactions uh, that are really, really important. You know, when we think of winemaking itself, so much of the uh, end product is due to so many different things, right? So you have, you know, the grape itself, the genetics of the grape, the age of the vine, you know, the uh, terroir of the soil, uh, how much smoke was there because of forest fires nearby, or how much sun was there, how deep were the roots in terms of how, you know, they were able to pull water, you know, is it a natural process or is it, you know, already watered, um, you know, is it near the coast or inland? All of this stuff, just from an environmental standpoint, affects just the grapes and how they grow. And then you have to figure out, like, when they're actually picked and when, you know, how ripe are they? You know, did you pick them in the, the correct way? Was there disease? You know, did they get a little burnt because the sun was out, you know, a little more than it should have one day uh, before the, uh, uh, the foliage you know, was pruned away? And then once you have the grapes, how are they crushed? You know, what was the barrels that they were put in? Was it steel barrels? Was it, you know, oak barrels? How old were they? Were they French oak? Were they American oak? 
you know, all, all of these things matter to the end product of that wine and you know, how long it aged even. And so, you know, we try to create these shortcuts and these shortcuts um, produce an inferior product and they make it harder to understand that nuance and that interconnection between all of these different really important components to the uh, resistance mechanisms that arise. I mean, we think about, you know, how we've been able to identify diseases and develop therapeutics. And we've kind of gone past the era where single changes and simple, simple, you know, targets are, are easy to find because they've already been found. A lot of them have already been found. And so now what we have to understand is how these different changes affect, not at like a two-dimensional level or three-dimensional level, but at like a nine-dimensional level. And that's much more complex than just a simple CRISPR modification. You know, now when we think about organoids, organoids do add complexity. They make a change that's really important. But the problem is, is that you're controlling the environment too much. And so a great way to think about this is, you know, wind signaling. So wind signaling is really important in many cases for creating these organoids. It helps with three-dimensionality. But because you're overexpressing this, this signal to create an artificial structure that cancer may or may not make, right? We don't really know how cancer self-assembles and forms and does all the stuff. There's a lot of active research being done to do that, uh, you know, characterization. And so if you're overexpressing or overabundantly, like, forcing a particular molecule to be uh, to be there you know um, you don't allow for deviance you don't allow for natural processes where as that molecule you know ebbs the uh, the cells change and so if you're not allowing for that nuanced you know environmental or alteration you're you're preventing natural occurrences from occurring you're preventing natural changes that uh, would result in resistance from being there mice are the same thing you know <laughs> i don't know a single person that's got mouse blood running through their veins and mice have their own signal factors and their own um you know microenvironment that basically can affect human cancers and this is why you know so many times we read stories and headlines where it's like mouse is cured of cancer and then she goes into patients and then no one no one has any effect on it or it's too toxic um, because mice are very different and that environment that mice create for these cancers is very different from the environments that happen in people and so it's really really important to try to mimic what happens in people and that's what answer is environmental cellular reprogramming using the environment of cancer in patients to reprogram the cells so that they become resistant to a therapy like it would in a patient. I think uh, you answered their you know, follow-up question, which is like, how do the, how, what are the limitations of the other models that NCARE addresses and uh, NCARE addresses? And I, I think you, you tied it there on the end. So person who wrote in, great question. Uh, I assume you got Nick excited. Uh, I got excited. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. I hit it out of the park. Um, the, I guess what's left to develop? You know, I, we talked about scalability a second ago. You can, you always kind of set, you can kind of guess based on who, what they're what people are hiring for, what they're what they're building. A lot of times, if I'm yeah. ever like really curious, or when I have someone on, I'll look at uh, what they're building. Uh, I wish people would share tax returns. Sad, no more. But uh, but so what's <laughs> when I have nonprofits, I ask for non, uh, tax returns, and one one nonprofit got very angry when I when I asked for them. But uh, I won't name them. But what's left to do? Uh, is there anything anyone listening can help you with? Oh gosh. Um, 
you know, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity that we're trying to add into the system. Um, and people people try to add complexity for complexity's sake because they think it makes it more realistic or they think it makes it, you know, cooler. Um, but I think one component that I would love to be able to model more effectively um, is the immune system. So we know, for instance, that the immune system yeah. has a, has a, plays a key role in how cancer responds. Um, and there's a lot of companies out there developing, you know, immune therapies or, you know, uh, immuno-oncology therapies um, that are trying to harness the immune system's natural ability to prevent cancer. Because, like, in our bodies right now, there's cancer forming, right? Whether whether it ultimately becomes cancer and we have to get treated or not, there are aberrant cells right now in all of our bodies that are, you know, growing and adapting and changing in a way that's not what it should be. And our immune system is doing its job to kill and modify and like control those cells. And so one of my favorite, favorite immune cells um, are NK cells, mostly because it sounds like Nick and that's my name and I, I'm egotistical sometimes. Um, yeah. <laughs> but NK cells are really cool because they're these natural killer cells, right? They naturally try to find out, find and kill cancer. Um, and the biggest problem with any system right now is that the immune component is really hard to maintain. Um, so there's a lot of companies developing CAR T therapies. There's a lot of companies, you know, trying to, you know, uh, take a patient's immune system, um, you know, grow it up in a dish, modify it genetically, then put it back in a patient so that it kills, you know, the tumor. And in, and there's a lot of successes. There's a lot of great successes. Um, but there's a lot of resistance that still occurs. You know, these cancer cells um, are still very resistant to these different immune components. Um, there's this kind of term, is it a hot tumor, is it a cold tumor? Hot tumor has a lot of immune activity, cold tumor has very little. And so being able to turn a cold tumor hot is a huge area of research. Um, and it's also a huge area of resistance. Like the fact that it's a cold tumor means that it's resistant to the immune system. And that's something that we want to be able to show and understand and study. And so that's the long-term goal. We're, we're working on, you know, systems right now that include that. And if you are a uh, cancer biologist that is really excited about the immune system, I'd love to talk to you because, you know, there's only, there's only, uh, you know, so many ways to kill cancer. And I think harnessing the immune system is one of the most beautiful and elegant ways to do that. Yeah, the immune system has spent the, what the last two billion years being evolved. It it is crazy how intricate the immune system is. And as someone who's read multiple textbooks on the immune system for a variety of reasons that Nick Nick swore of, but uh, uh, we don't know the immune system as well as we should. But no. it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't behave right. There's a lot of things where like this should go this way. And it's like, well, I know that it's not how it works. Uh, so there's a lot there's there's a, it's a great frontier there. I think, but it, it's. For people who uh, aren't sure, because I, I think it's like imagine like Normandy Beach, like everyone can imagine like Saint Private Ryan, where it's like you got like you got the mortars, you have all these different things. It, it, I guess a better analogy is like imagine a really well-run city, a big city. You have the police, you have you have medical staff, you have researchers like like Nick, uh, startups, all these different like this whole ecosystem, and that's your immune system every day. And then when people people get sick like once a year, a couple times a year, or whatever, and they're like really miserable about it, and it's like your body was just massacring so many things every second of every day and they don't get a day off like they don't get like a sun they don't get a siesta like they're always working like it's so cool that we have like this robust line of defense and there's like two types of there's one that's like just kind of there and there's one that's more active like remembering um viruses and whatnot and we'll send out a uh, little uh, little friends to murder them but uh so with that in mind with the immunotherapy added to it 
how do you think the landscape for for cancer treatments will change when you're just able to like fully get in there and people are like mass adopting it um i think you know the cell-based therapies and the the antibody work that's getting done i think it'll allow it for di- for it to be a little bit more complex a little bit more nuanced i mean like i said before with crispr crispr is really really good at engineering novel biology um but what we don't remember or what we kind of oftentimes forget is that we're trying to engineer cells that have their own operating system, right? That genetic material, the epigenetics, the transcriptomics, the metabolomics, the proteomics, all of these different, you know, molecules are working together in a way um, that is, you know, been evolutionarily defined. And every time we try to add in a program, whether it's a plasmid with DNA that says make this particular protein, or whether it's a, um, you know, a gene circuit or CRISPRed, you know, engineered, whatever, Um, We're asking the cell to run a program that we've engineered without understanding how that program is run in the cell itself. It's kind of like trying to write a program in a different language and then have it run on, you know, Microsoft, you know, Microsoft's uh, uh, operating system, but you've designed it for, you know, uh, you know, an Apple computer. Um, and you, you basically don't know if your computer code uh, or this genetic code that you're introducing um, is going to be a virus that causes the cell to like go, whoa, I'm not running that, um, or if it's going to be something that the that the cell can actually mesh with uh, and you know effectively change and, and create something. Um, and so that's the other thing. You know, we're we're very we're very new as a species to being able to understand this genetic code, right? We have, you know, tools that make it easier and that will compound over time. Um, But we still don't know how all of these different components interact together and how they, you know, operate to create a living, healthy cell. Um, And, you know, I'm excited to see what the next 10, 20, and 30 years brings because, you know, in my lifetime, we might actually be able to to do this. And I'd be really excited to see that, that occur. Yeah. And talking about years, uh, it's been three years since the last time you were on. We mentioned this a couple times. It's been five years since the first time you were on. Uh, hmm. What would be the next couple of years looking like? It's 2023 now. What's like 24, 25 looking like for you guys? Or you oh, personally? Man. Anything exciting going on? Oh, for me personally, I, I get in better shape. Um, that'd be great. I'll come chase you sometime. <laughs> I'll, like, I'll randomly chase you. Like I'll, uh, I'll text your wife or get your wife's number. And uh, I'll, I'll say like, hey, where's Nick? And I'll just like a- aggressively attack you randomly. <laughs> <laughs> like not like to fists but just like you know like enough where you're slightly afraid and then you'll you'll exercise because i don't like an energizer bunny but i i'll do that for you free of charge i appreciate that no i i mean yeah. uh i i think you know for me uh you know as a as a person and uh you know i i think evolution and resistance are really important not just in cancer but also in how we grow as people and how we grow as leaders um, you know, every time that we're faced with a particular situation, we can either adapt or we can resist change. Um, and so I hope that as, you know, we uh, go from, you know, even from the first conversation that we've had to now that I've become a more adaptable and more um, evolved thinker in how I approach different problems. And so I'm really excited to see what I what I'm able to do and what I'm able to uh, create, you know, three, four, five years from now. I think within the company, 
what's really exciting is that um, because we're able to predict clinical trial outcomes and because we're able to identify the set of drugs um, that might really change patient lives, you know, our goal is to identify, you know, cancer drugs that are near commercial stage assets, you know, near, near the point at which, you know, um, they can be put into patients and that we can actually affect um, you know, these patients in a real way. And so my goal is to convert our company, not just, you know, be this company that, you know, helps tons of, you know, you know, tens to, to, to hundreds of, of cancer companies, um, but one that's also helping patients, you know, where we're actually developing our own drugs uh, or commercializing our own drugs and identifying, you know, opportunities to really, um, you know, build build something that is in patients, not just working with pharma companies on drugs that will be. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, so personally, I always, uh, I've been asking people more of this, this question lately. Um, how do you, I don't know if you have pro problems with procrastination or anything like that. How do you, how have you handled burnout and stress over the years? Any, any like words of wisdom, uh, nuggets of, of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for people out there living their lives and having their own uh, struggles, have you, insight that you've come to that's helped you? Yeah, I, I have resisted, uh, I have resisted exercise, uh, for a really long time. Um, you know, I, I was a four season athlete, you know, that's what I was doing. Um, and I didn't realize how important it was to me, uh, in terms of my mental stability, in terms of my, uh, physical well-being, and in terms of my creativity. Um, and so I think that's been the biggest thing, um, is just getting back into exercising, um, and really taking care of my body. Um, I think the other thing that has been really helpful in getting me out of my own way, um, is, uh, art, you know, uh, when I was in grad school, uh, and even when I was, you know, in college and high school, um, I had this view of art as being something, you know, soft and, uh, you know, not quantifiable or not worth my time. And what I'm finding is that there are, you know, three kinds of people when, when, when it comes to art. There's the first kind of person that looks at art and goes, I could have done that. Uh, but they really can't. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they don't understand the complexity that goes behind the creation of that work. There's a the second kind of person that when they look at art, they go, wow, you know, that is really beautiful. I will never be able to create that. Um, and then there's the third kind of person that looks at it and goes, wow, um, that's really beautiful or, you know, that's kind of bad, but I could do it better and I'm going to learn how. Um, and so I've, I've kind of cycled through all three of those people um, over the course of my, you know, appreciation of what art looks like. And, and um, I've started doing a lot more painting and a lot more, you know, just creation and messiness. And it's helped me kind of understand that, you know, company formation and company creation are very much like art. You know, mm -hmm. you know there are technically good ways to do things, but ultimately you're creating a company or creating an organization that hasn't existed before. Um, and there are good rules and principles. And if you understand those rules and principles, you can understand when to break those rules and principles to create something brand new and to create something impactful. And so I think that for me has been one of the bigger kind of breakthroughs, um, you know, in my own thinking and in my own, you know, ability to lead. The last thing that I'll kind of part with on that is consistency. So oftentimes we think, oh, uh, you know, I, I'm just waiting for inspiration to arise or when I have time, I'll be able to write that novel or write that paper or write that article or pick a thing. And what I found is that if you consistently create time and space to do that work um, and, 
you just don't give yourself excuses. That creativity comes much more regularly. Um, and the improvement of the work that you create also, you know, uh, goes up very, you know, pretty drastically. And it's just like any other muscle, you know, if you stop doing something for a while, um, you know, <laughs> you're, you atrophy quite a bit and you have to keep building that up. And so consistency is really important, not only for yourself, um, but also for your work product and also for your team, because you want to make sure that you're presenting something that's going to effectively, you know, effectively be built. And that's, that's, what's really important. Yeah. It's interesting the mirroring, uh, I've been getting into art and drawing as well. Mine's drawing. Because uh, I'm gonna work my way up to painting, because it's it is messy. But uh, drawing, it's interesting how the world changes if you can paint it. Like uh, the focus of it, it's really for people who haven't done it. Like I don't know if you do this, but when you like go out and you look at things, don't you, I always just think of how would I how would I paint this? How would I look at this? Like how how simply could I draw this? Like for me, it's like how would I draw this? And so I've yeah. like, I've caught myself just like really staring at people. <laughs> like oh, how would I draw the contour of Nick's face? You know, like, <laughs> uh, it's, it's which is nice too because it's like a bit of mindfulness. Like you're a little bit more uh, attentive to the environment around you. Um, do you do you paint for your art? Is it abstract or is it like uh, real things? <laughs> I uh, so I'm a terrible drawer. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm fine ish. And, uh, I, and I've started trying to, to get better at kind of creating scale and creating that stuff. But, um, for me, it's been really difficult to translate what I see to, um, you know, to a physical thing that people can, uh, interpret. And so I've, I've been more abstract and more feelings based. Um, I try to create paintings with depth and with, um, you know, nuance and, and more motion, you know, in terms of like how the paint actually falls. So you can think of, you know, Gerhardt Richter mixed with Jackson Pollock mixed with, you know, uh, Jean Baptiste, not Jean Baptiste, um, Besquef. Um, so it's very, very much about, you know, taking what I'm feeling, taking what I'm seeing and, you know, moving the energy from my body to the paint and then using color and contrast and depth to, um, create something that's interesting. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, ugly and, uh, then mm -hmm. you paint over it, but that's part of the process. And that's part of the joy that I have is that it's, um, it's never exactly what you expected it to be. Um, but it's always something interesting. Yeah. There's a, I think at Target or somewhere, you can get these little tiny easels. They're this big, mm -hmm. like really small. I think it'd be interesting if you were to paint on one every day for like a year. And uh, it was just like your emotional state, like just try to capture that. Like what would it feel like to be Nick today? And uh, and then you can put that up somewhere. Like uh, Life is a CEO of a, bio, a biotechnology company. Uh, just the emotions. I don't know. I can <laughs> see that as a, an art installation. There'd be a lot of black... <laughs> you send me let me know when it's a black day and i will you know i'll hop on a plane and i'll, I'll come on you <laughs> sure yeah you know I'll, like with water balloons or something no not, not like evil heinous things where anyone's sitting there's like wolves about yeah. to hunt humans no like in a fun way uh, no, i mean you or something i mean I, so i think i think that the, the black is an interesting color um it reminds mm -hmm. me the uh um uh the parks and rec um uh, with Aziz Ansari, where he's like, "Come on, Larry." There's like 15 different colors of black. There's like ivory. There's like midnight. There's like, um, and and what I've found uh, it really kind of interesting is that there's a lot of nuance, right? And and um, within each color, you know, when when you look at a black painting, 
or painting that's very dark, oftentimes it's mixed with, you know, subtle, subtle colors underneath. And I think it really kind of reminds me of what we're studying, right? What we're working on is cancer is that cancer is this dark thing, right? It's this thing that people are really, um, you know, scared of. Um, but at the same time, there's there's nuance and subtleties. And if you can understand these nuances and subtleties, you can actually um, start to tease apart what makes black. Because black isn't just one thing, right? It's this mm-hmm. culmination of all of this different stuff. And so for me, it's, um, it's a really interesting color. And it can be used mm-hmm. in so many different ways. It provides depth, provides shading, it provides, <laughs> provides a lot of really beautiful elegant things i think do you have like an instagram or something where you post these things god or is no. it just for you <laughs> i mean i mean i love sharing my artwork with uh, with friends but there's no way in heck i'd put it on instagram uh instagram is a uh, you know i have enough distractions i'd prefer mm-hmm. not to give more data to <laughs> the wrong people Zuckerberg. yeah <laughs> uh, people keep telling me i should get an instagram and say i don't understand it i i made one and it's all just like food and recipes that come on my feed <laughs> so it's like they understand what i like like uh that's why i have like facebook i just like seeing cephalopods but um are are there are there literally uh, i have a people like friend me on try to friend me on facebook and i message them privately and say i'm only here for cephalopods like i have like a couple of uh uh authors that i'm friends with that like update and they have like a mass of people who just like take pictures of cephalopods and trees and that's all i, I go on there for uh but i hear you in sharing your data and also like preserving your mind space um are you reading anything? Do you have time for reading? What, what books would you recommend people check out? Yeah, um, I, I love reading. I think it's one of it's one of life's joys. Um, so, what was the book that I've been reading lately? Um, so, Futura is this artist. Uh, he uh, is this uh, one of the original graffitiists. Um, you know, back in the day. And uh, he's this abstract artist, and, and he he has this book called you know Futura, um, and he basically talks about the the most recent works that he's done, um, you know how he's gone through creation and the evolution of his artistic process, um, and I think you know one of the things that's been really cool is you know combining that book with his master class online, and just being able to hear in person and as well as you know read his words. Um, have been really kind of inspiring. Um, he he took a, a lot of time off uh, between you know his uh, claim to fame and you know when he had kids and he you know used that time to connect with his family and um, and then through that he was able to create these incredible pieces of artwork that were you know very emotive you know very different than his you know previous works and and you could see the depth of character that came you know uh, you know with time. So I think that was probably one of the the best ones and then. I also just like reading, um, you know, uh, sci-fi stuff, uh, and so I've been rereading the uh, Ender series because it's just a fun one. It's a, uh, it's a good, good. Mind. Also, Foundation, Foundation is the other good, good book series. Uh, very long. <laughs> They've got an Apple TV show on it now, but uh, uh, I've been a big fan of that for a while. Yeah, the best part of the Apple TV show, as it relates to the books is the emperor the three emperors mm-hmm. like that's the best part of it the, re- the rest of it's a little like, it's not as i don't know people always say this joke but like you know not as faithful of an adaptation because the books are just so compelling they're they're, yeah. they're really good yeah what happens in them no spoilers like a lot of interesting things happen 
lot of yeah. predictive things. It's interesting that you like the foundation since there's, <laughs> there's psycho history where you predict stuff. Uh, so that makes sense. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, it's, some... it's all about how you take uh, population level stuff and uh, population mm -hmm. level data and, you know, try to predict you know, the actions of things. And so for me, art imitates life, imitates art, imitates life. You know, it's a simple. Yeah. I'm going to have to check out the masterclass in the book that you recommended, um, Futura. But I, sometimes when I talk to people, I imagine them in the future, like, what are they going to do? And I, it seems to me that your future is going to end up kind of like George Bush, where you're just like, you're having paintings. Like, you go from like being a leader of something, and then I think you just make paintings. Uh, and you're from the Midwest, like, very conservative area. He's from Texas. So you move back to St. Louis, and you just make uh, your impressionist art, and you sell it. And people are like, oh, yeah. that's that guy. No, I, so so uh, I think I'd, I'd be more like Paul Allen, um, you know, mm -hmm. this massive art collection. Um, but I think for me, the thing that I really want to focus on is um, resistance art, um, you know, the the art of protest and the art of change. Um, I think that there's a lot of my own personal history in, um, you know, like just, you know, my, my ancestry, they, they fled genocide and, you know, on both sides uh, to come to the United States. And I think that there's an opportunity if I'm successful, um, to help people, you know, get out of really terrible situations and be able to express in art the way that, um, in, in a way that can connect with, you know, more people uh, on how to mm -hmm. actually address this, you know, human suffering. And so for me, it's about um, doing something a little bit bigger, not just my own art, but uh, helping artists, you know, get to a place of safety where they can really share, um, you know, what's going on and uh, in their home countries and hometowns yeah that sounds that's much more noble than uh, the joke i was going with um I, <laughs> i've been actually I, thinking I, about this one a lot so mm. <laughs> resistance well, art yeah i recently had a lady on who uh had a tv show no she made a movie where uh a guy was just like a graffitier and uh police like basically brutalized him to death and then during the making of the movie the police tried shutting her down as well uh but yeah yeah, I don't know. There's something in, in that. I'll have to show you that movie. I think it'd probably be something you'd enjoy, like the resistance of it, like the, you know, the ability to make a mark as like people try and like stamp you out. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I don't know. It also ties uh, into cancer. I don't know. It's just the, the resistance, the resistance. Solution, It just all it's it's all consuming. Whether it's art, whether it's science, whether it's politics. For me, it's very very central to who I am. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like. I think the best vacation I'd give you is I'd give you like unlimited fuel, a car, and like a roundabout with no turns. You know, like there'd be no resistance to, to, to your day. <laughs> you can just enjoy the drive. You don't have to make decisions. You just keep going straight. You know, there's like a beautiful vista all around. Yeah. You know, your wife's just like reading a book or something. You just could just go around in a circle, no resistance whatsoever. Yeah. You know, you're in space or something. I don't know. Yeah, I'd, I'd want to get to an infinite speed. I think that would be fun. You know, just put put on the gas and then just. Phew, past light speed into warp speed and onwards to the end of the universe sharing your knowledge anyone who's listening in uh please leave a comment or anything that you enjoyed from this episode or give me feedback on anything nick talked about today if you didn't like it uh i'll, I'll keep it to myself or send it to him and he, he'll appreciate it but nick thanks so much for being on the show today absolutely thank you Lil. i really appreciate the time have a great day